Hello everyone, and welcome to Discussions and Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. And this week, we're finishing our serialized look at the new sourcebook for 5th edition titled Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Tasha's has introduced new and optional rules for character creation as well as a ton of new quality of life additions to fully round out your campaign. This week, we're focusing on the environmental hazards. So this book has offered three different sections for environmental hazards and what they may be. The first section is supernatural regions, the second is magical phenomena, and the third is natural hazards. So we wanted to talk about each section, not in full, because there are so, so many examples and a plethora of examples within those examples. So we each this week chose our favorite from each section and wanted to talk about them. So starting with the supernatural regions, um, I chose the haunted this week. And all of these places have a D100 effect table that you would roll on when certain conditions are met. So... This haunted could be a haunted house, a cursed land, or any place that really harbors malicious spirits. And the book tells you to consider rolling on this D100 effect table if some of these, some or all of these conditions are met. Um, so these conditions are the creature gains the frightened condition, multiple creatures are unable to see, a creature is alone, Midnight or another ominous hour arrives, or a ghost or creature of the place's past menaces the party. So these circumstances that may or may not happen are pretty stereotypical when it comes to a like haunted house scenario. Uh, but depending on the campaign or possibly the mission, these could yield very unsettling situations. Um, it, Jaren, have you ever been a part of a haunted house scenario in D anD? I I can't say that I have, although that I'm I'm sure I think there is one in the Waterdeep Dragon Heights, if I'm not mistaken. Correct? Possibly. I think I think there might be. I, our party didn't run into it when we did Dragon Heist. Um, fortunately, I was actually part of the Mad Manor of Astabar, which is a standalone. Um, just a, it's a one off. It's supposed to be done in one or two. Uh, sessions, but it was a it was a level one. That's actually the first five E campaign, quote unquote campaign that I was a part of, um, and it was a haunted house. So I think it's kind of funny, you know. That one was the DM rolls this D one hundred for each room, and something different happens in each room. And this is kind of similar to the Mad Manor, where every time that something the condition is met, you would roll on this table and there are um, 20 different effects. One for, you know, on the D100, 1 to 5, 6 to 10, 11 to 15, you know, things like that. Some that really stuck out to me, when one of those conditions are met, uh, one random creature's shadow acts independent for the next 24 hours. The shadow acts out of sync with its owner, perhaps dramatically choking or trying to murder another shadow. So very unsettling to the party. You know, if you have a cleric, they may see that and uh, be a little displeased. Be very creepy. This is a, kind of a, a Stormlight feel to it, if anybody is familiar with that series. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Um, another one is 
So over the next 24 hours, whenever any creature in the region regains hit points from a spell, the healing magic leaves scars. This might be accompanied by a purging of black bile or a spectral force tearing free from the creature, and these scars can be removed only by greater restoration or wish. So thinking about, like, you are trying to heal your party, but every time you do it, these, like, varicose, dark, necrotic veins just spread over your body or these scars just start to develop. Like, that would be a really, really cool time for the DM to be like, all right, they're they're healing you. All right, roll a con save. And then it's like, does healing not work? That may, like, psych your players out into not wanting to heal or not wanting to use some certain spells. I think that's really cool. Environmentally, kind of putting your players in this little puzzle of, like, well, now it's a puzzle within the puzzle. Like, shit, what do we do? Can we cast these spells? Yeah, and and uh, to be clear, like when these effects uh, take hold, the player doesn't necessarily have to be told exactly the mechanics of what's going on, right? It's when they uh, attempt to heal, that's when you describe the effect. Mm-hmm. That, that one really stuck out to me just because, you know, healing is something that generally you want to do every time. It's something that's going to happen when you're in a dangerous situation, but now it might not. Um, and the last one that I that I thought was so, so cool was after the next sunset, the sun doesn't rise again for 36 hours. Oh, wow. During this time, the sky over the region might hold a crimson moon, be obscured by rolling fog, or display blinking alien stars. Now, that would be really unsettling. Oh, yeah. It's just dark, and your players take their long rest, and they wake up, and it's still dark. I imagine that would kind of mess with someone's long rest. You might think, if you're taking... Um, different shifts for a watch, for example, and uh, everything that would ordinarily be triggered uh, by the fact that the sun is rising and you can kind of tell what time it is, that's all messed up for the next 36 hours. Mm-hmm. Or would that even reset? Um, I know there are some magic items that they regain their charges at dawn or roll 1d4 charges at dawn. That's a good distinction. Yeah, so I wonder if that would mess with their ability to regain these magical charges or anything like that. But there's nothing honestly creepier to me or more unsettling that you wake up and it's still dark. Like, you know, we're, we've all been there where we wake up in the middle of the night and they're like, what time is it? And it's 4 a.m. and it's still dark and it just feels so like I shouldn't be awake. I shouldn't be up. This is really unsettling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at you as the DM have that discretion to say, well, your magic items don't recharge. It's not technically dawn. That's up to you. You can, you can make that choice in, um, make it a little bit more creepy or unsettling for the players. Yeah, a little bit more threatening. But what I like about these hazards the most is that it, pro- it presents a problem or an inconvenience, but not like an additional enemy or anything like that. It It's initial problems that may disrupt the campaign or the flow of these sessions. You know, players go in, all right, well... We're going into a haunted house. I've got a cleric with me and a paladin. No undead is going to touch me. We're totally fine. But, you know, these are additional problems. Maybe, you know, I think there's one where, um, like, a ghost just consistently follows you. It's not one that is hostile towards you, but it consistently follows you. It could be disrupting your path. It could be um, making it hard to see in certain areas. It's just problems or inconveniences and not necessarily, like... All right, you roll on a D100. Okay, well, either 
you know, your shadow jumps away from you, or a an adult or an ancient bone dragon shows up. Like it's it's not so varied in its intensity, but it's it's all problems. Right. And as the uh, su- section suggests, these are environmental hazards. So it's less of here's a random encounter and more of here's how the terrain around you, here's how your environment might disrupt what you want to do um, in, mm-hmm. in a way that makes sense and kind of makes it a little bit more immersive. Yeah, that's that's what I thought was the coolest thing about it was that it's, it's affecting – it is. It's an environmental hazard. It's affecting your environment and not, like you said – creating random encounters this isn't an an encounter hazard it is definitely how your terrain shifts around you so next up i took the region the mirror zone which honestly kind of has a funny name it sounds like uh you know a fun weekend trip with your friends uh going out to some local fun house or something like that um this area this region um would occur where there's some sort of convergence of planar and magical energies to create this place of reflection. So I, I picture this being somewhat um, peripheral to, uh, you know, like where there's going to be some uh, portal to another another plane, the uh, the Feywild or something, or just something that's not on the material plane. And where where that effect and these these magical energies kind of collide and, and crash together, uh, where you've got these uh, different uh, creatures, objects, energies, reflecting, uh, refracting, duplicating, um, showing images from the other plane or showing images that just aren't there reflecting things that are there in a disturbing and sort of unsettling way and within this region this mirror zone um the interesting things are like we mentioned before the different effects i'll go through those in a quick fashion but the way that those are suggested to be triggered um would be if you know for example a creature shatters a mirror or if they use any sort of teleportation magic uh, perhaps if an illusion appears for some reason, or if a creature tries to impersonate another creature, all things thematic to the idea of reflection in some way. And some of those interesting effects, um, for example, you might uh, change in your physical appearance. Um, the region, the area uh, could be affected by hallucinatory terrain as determined by the DM. Um, one random creature in the area could be affected by the blink spell which honestly is pretty hilarious. If you're unfamiliar with Blink, um, at the start of uh, your turns, if you're affected by this spell, uh, you roll a d20, and on 11 or higher, you just vanish from your current plane and appear in the ethereal plane. Um, at the start of your next turn, you just appear within 10 feet of the space you vanished from. Uh, you vanished from. So as I've seen it in effect uh, once, and it's honestly kind of funny to watch a player try to maneuver about the battlefield and they roll a d20 and they just disappear and have the turn entirely disrupted. It's kind of kind of hilarious. Some of the other effects in this region, you just don't cast reflections. Um, you might be attacked by one of your own reflections, by this two-dimensional version that comes and attacks you as, as if it was some sort of um, spirit. Uh, one random creature in the area could be affected by mirror image. Um, another effect, uh, whenever you attack and deal damage to something, these spectral slivers of glass come out and, and deal more damage to that. It's a 24 hour effect. Um, mirrors in the area could let you teleport via uh, misty step without requiring components. Um, one creature in the area would be allowed to cast the scry spell once, um, using a mirror without having to need any other components. Um, you might have some mirror like reflective skin suddenly. Uh, one of the other interesting effects I, I found is 
Um, a long sword or a short sword that's got a blade made out of a jagged mirror could appear within 60 feet of a random creature. Um, it's stats, it's technically uh, a sword of wounding, which is a cool item that um, whenever you hit with it, it, it just possibly does additional damage. However, with this one on a roll of uh, 1 or 20, it just suddenly shatters. It's a bit more fragile. Um, for the next 24 hours, successful attackers, this is another effect, um, must roll a DC 13 Christmas save or whatever damage they dealt. If they fail, they uh, take half of that damage back at themselves as force damage. Sort of the idea of that damage reflecting back onto them. Um, my other favorite of this group sort of reminds me of the game Portal, um, where if you happen to roll within a certain range on this D100 when you trigger an effect, uh, two six-foot diameter shimmering discs appear. One is within 30 feet of the party. The other one could be anywhere within the region, um, anywhere within this affected mirror zone region. And when you move through one of these discs, you just get teleported to the other one. So kind of neat. Go through the portal and find out where you go. Good luck. I love that. I think that being able to put that in front of your players as a very, very tasty temptation is... I, I think those elements are really fun where you may not get the character, but damn, the player really wants to do that. Maybe the character doesn't, but the player really wants to. And I mean, I don't think a a DM would, you know, put the portal over like a pit of spikes or anything like that. It just adds a little bit more uncertainty to this already very uncertain yeah. kind of zone you're in, this mirror zone. And, and to be uh, clear, the other specification that I failed to mention was that these two discs um, do hover one foot off the ground. So there's no risk of you going through the portal and a uh, surprise, you're 100 feet up in the air. Uh, you're going to take a bunch of bludgeoning damage from falling. That's not going to happen. These are, you know, stable portals. You step through it and you can step onto soft ground on the other side. So, but still kind of fun to, to look at a disc and go, what's going to happen if I go through this thing? Where am I going to go? You don't know. Go find out. Um, a few of the other final effects for this zone that I, I think are pretty interesting. Um... Next time a creature in the area looks at the reflection, it comes to life and engages with them. Not in a, in a hostile manner, but in a, a cooperative sort of a manner. Um, that reflection will offer to answer one question as if under the divination spell. After you ask it, it just returns to a normal reflection. I think it was kind of cool. You get to Oh, yeah. Talk a, to a kind of a benevolent reflection. Yeah. yeah. Well, magic mirror uh, action. Yeah, I... This mirror zone doesn't seem to, um, like, it's all bad. Like, at yeah, least with there's... the haunted, it was like, there's a lot of m malicious intent going on with these haunted. But with the mirror zone, it could be good, it could be bad. Yeah. It, it could be good, it could be bad. Wait till we get to the last one. I have two more. Uh, <laughs> the last one's a bit of a doozy. Uh, but second to last, uh, floating shards of broken mirrors could appear, reflecting things that are not present. Uh, this effect lasts for a minute. Um, on initiative count 20, you guys roll initiative, and then on 20, the shards make a ranged weapon attack. They get a plus 6 to hit and deal 3d6 slashing on hit. Sounds kind of terrifying. Suddenly just broken mirror shards appearing in your area, just kind of floating around, spinning around you menacingly, um, and then on initiative 20, they just all attack at you. It sounds a bit terrifying to me. But that is not the least terrifying. If you happen to be super unlucky, and when you roll one of these effects that you triggered and roll a 95 or higher, 
here's the one that feels sort of like pulling you know the worst possible card out of the deck of many things a duplicate of one random creature in the area appears within 30 feet of it will a fight to the death if the duplicate dies it shatters into broken glass and it's basically a one hour timer if the duplicate fails to kill the real version it just vanishes so kind of a terrifying thing to see a clone of yourself just appear it has all your weapon all your equipment and stats um, if you kill it, you don't get to like loot through your your equipment and get duplicates of your stuff. It just everything turns to glass. Um, but it'd be kind of terrifying to suddenly see yourself in front of you and it's trying to kill you. Good luck. It's gonna fight to the death for the next hour. Oh my god! Especially if, you know you got people that min max. That'd be kind of fun to punish the min maxer for a hot second. <laughs> exactly. Or you know, what if you've got a squishy wizard and they have you know, a fifth level fireball coming at them right now. Oh man. Good luck. Yeah. This could present a huge problem to whomever. Yeah. I would, um, have a lot of pity for the person that rolled this in the mirror zone, but, uh, such is life. There's a lot of really cool effects. And then there's this one really bad effect that you don't want to roll. Uh, but it is still thematic to the mirror zone for sure. Yeah, definitely roll under 95. Please don't roll above that 95. Exactly. So it's a fun area. I, I think it's got a lot of cool effects. And um, so next time your party is somewhere near uh, where these magical energies and, and planar energies could possibly collide, this is certainly a good candidate to introduce some fun. For sure. So the next section of these environmental hazards is magical phenomena. So how this differs from what we were just talking about, these magical phenomena are usually singular in and of itself. They're not usually a, an environment or a place or a realm. These are singular things or events that, that are fleeting. Um, and Jaren, you took magic mushrooms uh, in the book. In the book, you took magic mushrooms this week, right? That is, that is correct. Uh, I am currently not in real life taking magic mushrooms. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about magic mushrooms in the book. Um, I like this idea, you know, these, this idea that these, these uh, foreign plant life could be uh, both deadly or delicious or one of the two. And I, I specifically chose this one uh, because our Sunday group has at least two players that um, seem to have a likeness uh, for finding different plant life that could be used for poisons or for other, other means. And uh, even our rogue, uh, found some really interesting homebrew rules for crafting potions and crafting uh, poisons with naturally occurring plant life and the mechanics for a bunch of different stuff and how that would work. So I really like the idea of magic mushrooms or uh, perhaps uh, an area that you found in a cave that's got uh, a whole bed of magic mushrooms. Um, and keep in mind, in the world of d and I guess this is also true in real life, but especially in the world of D&D, you have mushrooms that could be tiny, like fit in your hand, uh, all the way up to several feet tall. I don't know if mushrooms get several feet tall in real life, but in D&D, they could be like five, six feet tall. So um, you potentially have like either a bunch of single-use mushrooms that you found or one giant cap that you keep biting out of. And, you know, it keeps doing this really strange effect to you each time you, um, you take it there. So... Some really interesting effects. These are all the sort of thing, um, by the way, that you would likely have to try once to see what it does. Um, 
this is not the kind of thing where like, oh, you, your player picked a magic mushroom and you just tell them what it does. You're probably, they're probably going to have to take that risk and see what it does. These are all, not all bad effects. They're just mostly interesting. So it's another roll on a table sort of thing. So I'll go through these effects. There's not, you know, 30 of them like in the other sections. It's just a D10. So some of those effects, um, your skin turns a strange color. It's it's sort of a strange pattern of colors, really, uh, where you roll a d4 on the table and see what it does. Um, this is a permanent effect, um, unless you use some sort of like greater restoration or a similar spell to uh, to negate it. Um, on a two, you got a, a, a one of the two things. You either transform by the enlarge or reduce spell for an hour, sort of the Alice in Wonderland effect. You might possibly just regain hit points, regain five. 5d8 plus 20 hit points if you need it so there is that possibility to get something super good um out of four this one is honestly kind of funny it is basically a chicken curse where all you can do for the next hour is collect like a chicken and you can also understand and speak to chickens for that hour now as the dm maybe you decide that uh well they're in the middle of the forest they're never going to come across chickens in the next hour so maybe we make it so that like they can uh, chirp like a squirrel or something like that, and like that's the that's the way that that uh, effect is interesting and uh, applicable. Um, the next effect is uh, you could understand and speak all languages for the next one d four days, which that could be super useful, especially if you've got um, a bunch of these things, you know, or maybe you happen to find one of those big two foot tall mushrooms it's got a, a pretty massive cap you plucked and you happen to get lucky and this is the magic mushroom that lets you speak all languages that could be super useful um the next effect is um you could gain the benefits of telepathy for the next 24 hours another one very useful that if you happen to find a bunch of these things and found out this is what it does you could you know potentially have a stash of these mushrooms that gave you uh, telepathy for the next 24 hours. Now, I think it's a good, uh, a good time to pause and remind you that um, you don't necessarily have to tell the player that, hey, you get the benefits of telepathy. You could simply describe what's, what's going on, and we'll see that that could be really unsettling. Another effect later on um, is that you immediately just cast detect thoughts. You don't have to tell the player, hey, you cast detect thoughts, but what you could do is after they bite into one of these magic mushrooms, just suddenly describe them being able to hear the thoughts of something else. In your head, you can hear them, hear exactly what they're thinking. And that could be really unsettling as they try to figure out what the heck just happened, what's going on. Why all of a sudden can I have the benefits of telepathy? You don't have to say you get the benefits of telepathy, but you could just describe what that would do. Or being able to uh, get the benefits of speak with plants is the next one for the next eight hours. Um, or the other one, which would be really kind of strange, immediately casting the time stop spell, which lets you uh, basically do whatever you want for the next, uh, I think it's 1d4 rounds. Everything else just stops, and you get to maneuver yourself. Or It's really, one of those spells that's really useful in combat. But if your player just happened to bite into a mushroom and time stop was cast, you could simply describe to them everything else around you freezes, as if, you know, frozen in time uh, to the other players it might look like that one player with time stop is moving at a supernatural pace, uh, a blinding unnatural pace, kind of like how a stone giant might if they had the time stop spell. Imagine. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
lastly, these are all kind of interesting effects. Like I said, you don't have to tell the player this is exactly what you gain, um, unless it's obviously like, oh, your skin turns a weird color. Um, but you could just describe what it is when they get to, you know, cast detect thoughts. They start hearing voices in their head that they don't know where it's coming from. Kind of unsettling. The last one is also really kind of creepy, which would be a really uh, a unsettling thing to have described that is happening to your character is uh, magical mists begin to pour forth from your eyes and ears, acting like the fog cloud spell for one hour that's centered on you and kind of moves with you. So I think that would be a really bizarre thing, especially to watch it happen as someone in your party just suddenly fog just starts coming out of their eyes and ears for the next hour. These are all really, really cool effects. Um, I don't think there's anything, I mean, other than the chicken curse. Um, <laughs> yes. Or, I mean, I guess getting reduced or depending on what campaign you have or where you are, you know, your skin changing different colors or looking very atypical of what your race might look like. Maybe a little unsettling for people, but some of these are really cool effects. Um, you know. Yeah, they're very, they're, none of these are going to kill you. They're not going to outright deal damage to you. They might make you a little bit unnerved as you try to figure out exactly what's going on. Yeah, I think it would be kind of cool to describe the, the time stop spell happening where it's like you you just roll, you know, a D4 and it's just you sit there for 18 seconds and you realize the fire has stopped moving. The birds have stopped singing. All of your party has stopped moving. Just frozen in space. You sit in silence. And it's like, now the person is like, am I high? Or <laughs> What's going is this on? actually happening? <laughs> is this real life? Literally, is this real life? <laughs> I think that that's, magic mushrooms are, are pretty, pretty fun. I think, you know, even, obviously everything is up to discretion of the DM, I think. It would be even a fun time to, you know, come up with your own effects and make the table even bigger. Make those chances for these other effects, you know, even smaller. So yeah, maybe, I think that would be really cool. Maybe you want to turn it into a D12 and you add a couple of definitely negative effects, um, you know, where you, you eat a mushroom and you take some damage and are considered poisoned. Maybe you want to add that in there just so that there's, uh, you know, at least some risk to eating a strange thing you found in the middle of the forest. And um, like yeah. I mentioned before, in the realm of D&D, these can be any size. It could be you found uh, in the middle of a cave, uh, the floor covered in these golf ball-sized mushrooms, and all with the same sort of coloration. You picked a bunch of them. Um, you as the DM could just roll and figure out that they all do the same thing. Uh, or that you happen to go into this area you know, in the cave and find a whole garden full of these things ranging from a couple inches to several feet. And the player just took one of the big ones and now they've got X number of uses of whatever it is you roll. Um, you know, they've got 57 uses of the chicken curse. Maybe they use that uh, to their advantage and try to sneak that into someone's drink or something. Or maybe the rogue just slips it into the party's food while he's making it. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Well, I'm, I'm really excited about um, this next section here. I've been obsessed with this picture since I first cracked open this book and I saw this picture of the Mimic Colony. So essentially what a Mimic Colony is, is kind of what it suggests. You know, if you are familiar with 5e or Dungeons and Dragons, 
a mimic is a creature that can transform or polymorph its body into an ordinary object. You know, a table, a chair, a cup and saucer, or a fork even if it wanted to, a book. Most popularly, everyone has seen mimics as chests. You know, you open up the chest and there's a mouth with teeth and a super long tongue that's trying to eat you. So essentially, in extremely rare cases, mimics will come together and start forming a group or a colony. And mimics hardly ever stay in their own original form, this kind of purple, alien-like, large teeth, glowing yellow eyes. They don't ever really stay in that form because survival is at the heart of what a mimic is trying to do. That's why they transform, so that they will not be attacked or hunted down or anything like that. So these mimics have formed a colony in the shape of a town that might sprout up overnight. Mimics might come together to form the side of a mountain or grand churches or crystal formations. Um, and as they colonize and as they group themselves together, they actually become a lot stronger. Um, something that, that they can do is communicate telepathically. Now, within 10 miles of the colony, any mimic can communicate telepathically with any other creature within 120 feet of it, and it can also speak common and undercommon fluently. Um, and these colonies' offspring gain these abilities innately and can use them even when a, they're away from the colony. There is a juvenile mimic stat block right next to this block of text here in the book, and it gives you these abilities that the offspring or the juvenile mimics can do. Now, I think it would be very unsettling if you walk into a town and you see no one, but it's perfectly set up as if somebody was there. You know, you have houses with possibly a fire going and you have markets with food in them and you keep hearing these telepathic voices in your head and you don't know where they're coming from, but the town is seemingly empty. That just, oh, it gives me chills. That is very creepy. And I, I as a player... I, I don't know what I would think about that. I, I, I have so many questions running through my mind just envisioning that. Um, I, I don't think the first place I would go is, oh, this is a mimic colony. I would probably go yeah. to a lot of other places first. So Yeah, you might think ghosts. You might think, like, possession. You know, whatever it may be that a town is completely empty, but it's not. It's full of beating hearts and blinking eyes, but you just can't see them. I, I imagine this constant feeling of being watched as well. Yes. I'm pretty sure that, you know, a DM would say something about that. Maybe a perception check of like, you don't see anything, but you definitely have the feeling of being watched. Yeah, that would be very unnerving. Yeah. Now, if your party is possibly unfortunate enough to stumble upon one of these mimic colonies, um, you know, like I said earlier, their primary focus at all times is survival. They want to make sure that their colony will survive and they're not outright going to attack somebody. Probably, I'd, I'd guess, unless they were alone. I thought something that was very interesting because they can speak common and undercommon and, you know, communicate telepath telepathically. These mimics can be bought given if you give them information or food or hidden treasure or secrets like that, you can buy your way through this mimic colony or they may be willing to barter with you. 
Um, however, if you do act aggressively towards this mimic colony, there are a couple layer effects or layer actions that take effect if you immediately attack one of these or, or a, a mimic sprouts up and it's in its true form and your party attacks it or anything like that, any sort of act of aggression while in the mimic colony, um, it has an initiative count of 20, it loses all ties, and every round you will get one of these layer effect actions. Now, just like any layer actions, you cannot have two in a row that are the same. So I'll go ahead and read uh, these four that exist here in the book. So uh, the first one is the Mimic Colony chooses up to three creatures within 300 feet of it. Each target must succeed on a DC 15 strength saving throw or have its speed reduced to zero until initiative count 20 on the following round. As pieces of the environment grasp the target, and if a target fails the save by five or more on the D20 roll, it is restrained instead for that duration. The next is the Mimic Colony uses the help action, aiding a creature of its choice within 300 feet of it. Uh, the Mimic Colony chooses up to three creatures within 300 feet. Each target must succeed on a DC 15 dex saving throw or take 13 or 3d8 acid damage as orifices appear on the surfaces in the environment and launch caustic spittle. Or, um, the last one is, the Mimic Colony chooses a cube of non-magical, inanimate material in physical contact with it. The cube can be up to 15 feet on a side, and the colony reshapes that material however it likes. This transformation lasts for one hour. And it is noted here at the bottom of this block of text that when determining the difficulty of an encounter with a hostile Mimic Colony, consider the colony to be one additional creature of a challenge rating 2. So it's not like you're going to be outright killed by this Mimic Colony, but it will definitely, I mean, restraining your party, it, depending on your party's strength or dex, it could do enough damage or restrain you to the point where you may need to give up or just leave. Yeah, this sounds like something that would be fun for five minutes, and then when you realize what's going on, it, you will just want to get out of there as fast as you can. Can you imagine just walking through a town and just a, a barrel that you walk past grabs your ankle, restrains you in place, and you start seeing these mouths and eyes appear just out of building sides and out of the ground. You op you step down onto the ground and it opens up into a, f a mouth. Like This sounds like an episode of The X-Files. Oh, yeah. Very, very much so. Super, super creepy. Um, I, you know, I like this a lot. I was obsessed with the picture. The picture in the book... Um, it looks like these two older women sitting down at a table having tea, but the longer that you look at this picture, the more unsettling it gets as you see, well, now the teapot actually has eyes and a tongue sticking out of it, and both of their cups are mimics, and the chairs that they're sitting on have eyes and a mouth, and even the rug underneath them, and the house that they're actually sitting in, if you look up towards the top, there's teeth coming off this, like, trellis that's hanging off. Like, it's... And the potted plants all have tongues. It's so, so creepy. Very, I love this picture. Very disturbing, for sure. Yeah. Now, the last thing that is in the book here for these environmental hazards is the actual natural hazard um, section. And this is talking about everything that we actually see here as humans in everyday life. You know, uh, raging rivers or chasms, avalanches, uh, things like that. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting about this section is that they have uh, a, a table here that is spells as natural hazards. So if you 
if you are happen to be caught in a blizzard, for say, uh, the the damage would probably be coming from a cone of cold or ice storm or sleet storm. If your players were, uh, let's say, struck by lightning, the the damage that it would be would probably be from the call lightning or lightning bolt spell. Or if there's, or if they are on um, on the high seas and they're caught in a whirlpool, your DM would probably use the spell control water. So it gives a huge list. I think there's like. 20 or 25 different uh, natural hazards here on this table and they all each have at least one to two spells that could be what it is mimicking um the, at least the damage and the the environmental hazard side of what this is yeah and that makes a lot of sense we've seen natural hazards um as, as early as in the dungeon master's guide and uh, there is one in here uh, for avalanches in, in Tasha's. And we actually saw mechanics for how avalanches work in the Rhyme of the Frostmaid adventure, which I believe actually came out first. But I am glad that they included it here as well so that we've got, you know, a resource for the mechanics of different naturally occurring phenomena all in one spot. Uh, well, I guess technically all in two spots if we're including the Dungeon Master's Guide. However... Um, you know, this could in, in include, I think we, we covered all, most of them, but, you know, for example, like falling into water or, or falling onto another creature, there's mechanics for that. Um, and then as, you know, as Britton mentioned, as you might imagine, a lot of these naturally occurring phenomena um, really just kind of mimic spells, or maybe it's the other way around, spells mimic these naturally occurring hazards. So they don't need to go and uh, create new mechanics for all these different possible scenarios um it suggested you could just use a spell that would uh, be a, a good mechanic to use for that type of hazard um you know thunder uh, tidal waves radiation smoke those sorts of things there's all spells that make sense to use as that mechanic yeah and i know that as a dm it can be really frustrating when you want to have some of these natural disasters or things like that in your campaign then you have to mentally sit there and be like, all right, well, is 10d10 damage too much? Or what's the save on this? You know, I think it's kind of cool that they have already, this is the damage it's going to take. This is the spell that it mimics. Um, this is how they might get out of this sort of situation. And they already give that to you rather than, well, if you want to do this, it'll be, this will be the DC, but depending on how high they fell or how many rocks there are, like, you know, it's, they give it to you right here. And I think they, mm -hmm. they simplify it to a, a really good it, it's distilled yeah i would agree there's not much to say on the natural phenomena section it's eventually you're gonna have you're gonna come across that scenario where you have to figure out how does an avalanche work or um what how, what's the mechanic for somebody falling onto somebody else and uh there's ways to figure all of that stuff out there's always going to be something that you can figure out and um you know, Tasha just puts a nice bow on, on the end here. I don't think there's really much more to say on it, and uh, uh, apparently Tasha's didn't either, as they just said, use these spells. Yeah, exactly. Well, that actually is going to do it for Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Now, unfortunately, we did not get everything in the book. There were some things that we felt like was okay to skip. Like, for instance, if you have been following along... We didn't really go into the um, magical miscellaneous section of the book because we didn't want to spend, what, a, another hour and a half, two hours just talking about each magical item that they give. Um, we did talk a little bit about the new summon spells and things like that, 
but we didn't want to go too much into the things that were not um, things that you would use every single campaign. So we, you know, we talked about the character options of the new subclasses. Uh, we went through all of those. We talked about the artificer class as a whole. We talked about group patrons. We talked about session zeros, um, and now we're talking about. Uh, environmental hazards and the thing that we are going to be skipping here towards the end as well uh we're not going to be talking about puzzles or, or any of the handouts generally puzzles are something that's created by the dm uh, and you know those are those are very personal some people look online some people you know mimic other puzzles and things like that so we didn't really want to go too much into puzzles but jaron how did you feel about tasha's as a whole as a new source book as a new you know chunk of information i would say the the missing another missing piece we've got player's handbook and now we have xanathar's and now we have tasha's called of everything we have three solid books that players can get their information from when it comes to character building yeah i would say overall i'm really satisfied with tasha's i think there's a lot of really good stuff in here it expands on uh, a lot of the classes that we love and gives us some really new fun options and um I there's a, there's stuff that was always for a while just playtest stuff and uh, like for example the cyanide I think was in playtest for a long time and I'm glad that it's finally an actual subclass. Um, some of them are are less appealing to me than others. Uh, overall, I'm really happy with all the new subclasses. Um, I'm really especially happy with the new summon spells as I know um, the the conjure series of spells is kind of a headache for a dm and for a player it can kind of give them a bit of an unfair advantage depending on what they decide to summon or how you want to run that maybe it's technically supposed to be up to the dm or it's supposed to be random i'm not exactly sure but that spell those that series of spells just generally is kind of a headache so i'm really happy to see the new summon spells um and and some of the creative cues or or nods or leads that it can give you with those really bizarre material component requirements um, some of the things in Tasha's I'm less satisfied with. I don't want to rehash my rant on sidekicks, but I'd say that that is overall the section I'm least happy with. Um, so I guess overall I give Tasha's an 8 out of 10. Yep, I would agree with that. That's a good solid score, 8 out, eight out of 10 for sure. I, you know, this isn't a perfect book. Um, there are some things that I know the the fans of Dungeons and Dragons, the players, the DMs, everybody wishes there was a little bit more when it came to wizards addressing the inherent racism when it comes to these races. They talk about a little bit with, well, if you don't like, you know, some of these uh, these options or these uh, these races having racial negatives, they, they kind of skirt around it. They talk about it a little bit with character customization for ability score improvements being tied to your class rather than your race. You know, I like that, but I, I think that maybe they, they should have talked about that a little bit more and why we're changing it and why this is more of a rule and not just an optional rule. Um, that was coming around, it was coming, you know, more to light around the same time that Tasha's was coming out. So I, I know that players wanted to hear a little bit more about that from Wizards, but Having said that, I will say that something that we have talked to death, and it bears repeating one more time, is that versatility is the heart of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. I think that making these characters seem more versatile, seem less one track, I think this is such a cool book that gives us so many options as players 
and and as DMs. I feel like DMs have been given just as many options and um, routes to steer the campaign in. Uh, yeah, players get classes and subclasses, but you know, as we've seen, there's a big section on session zeros. There is this section on sidekicks that we talked about and group patrons and how the DM can use some of this information to steer the campaign. So I, I would agree, eight out of 10, solid book. Um, I know I'm really excited about this Twilight Cleric. I cannot wait to get my little grubby player hands on this Twilight Cleric and zoom around in my bubble of night to be basically Batman. Oh yes, for sure. And one one final thing I wanted to comment on something you said is uh, the versatility of these classes, feeling like they are less one-track, one-dimensional. But at the same time, I don't feel like... I, I still feel like each class has a sense of uniqueness. Um, it doesn't feel like, you know, we're, they're trying to give every class the ability to do everything. They still feel unique. Um, it's just they feel less one-dimensional, too. And I think they did a good job mm -hmm. of making that balance. Yeah, especially with the, like, optional class rules that they had given in the beginning with, um, you know, like how uh, barbarians and bards, and they all have these optional rules in the beginning of saying, like, if you don't want, you know, this sort of thing, as you level up, you can change it to this. Each of those optional rules are still very unique to the class. Mm -hmm. Also, I'm really excited to try Artificer. Gotta say it. Yep. Yeah. Holy cow. They're such a cool class. All right, well, that is our show this week. Thank you guys so much for stopping by. And if you liked this episode, please check out our future episodes, which are released every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Central. Next week, we'll be talking about our top 10 tips on how to be a better player at the table. This has been Discussions and Dragons. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. See you next time.